0: I want to remind listeners that we're doing a survey for your favorite episodes of 2015. You have until January 31st, so please go to econtalk.org, econtalk.org, and in the upper left-hand corner, you'll find a link to the survey, so please vote. Today is January 11th, 2016, and my guest is James Heckman, the Henry Schultz Distinguished Service Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago and winner of the Nobel Prize in 2000. Jim, welcome to EconTalk.
1: Nice to be with you, Russell.
0: Much of your contribution in econometrics is to relate, is related to what is sometimes called selection bias. Uh, the people or data that uh, we observe may not be like the people or data we don't observe. How much progress do you
1: think we've made in this area? Well, I think a lot of progress has been made. I think the initial uh, literature was really pointing out the problem, which had been neglected by many economists, not all by any means. But it had been a problem uh, that had been kind of swept under the rug and stayed that way for many, many years. And when the uh, issue became uh, came aware, uh, became sort of gotten into the public uh, discussion on economics, uh, two things happened. One was that people became more data sensitive and this triggered responses that weren't purely methodological, that consisted of people collecting better data, which is always a very good thing to do. And secondly, it also suggested something which I think links us closely to economics, which is basically that the selection decision generally, uh, at least if it's self-selection by agents, really involves a lot of economic considerations. And so when we think about things like labor supply, unemployment, uh, even voting or other kinds of questions, choices were there. And so it stimulated some work also in linking economic uh, analysis of data to economic choice analysis, so it, it had these two branches. I think, which are still very active today.
0: It's a huge problem, though, and I, you give a wonderful example in uh, in in one of your um, pieces where you talk about how when we try to assess progress made by African Americans over, say, 1950 to 2000, there's some progress over the first few decades of that of that period, substantial progress. But unfortunately, it appears that much of that progress. is measured rather than real because many african americans are not in the labor force they are not like the ones who are in the labor force and so the rise in measured say average wages is is the fact that some of the lowest wage workers are not in the set in the data is that correct still
1: that's correct i mean one of the biggest sources of course has been incarceration where black males are literally taken out of the labor force and we think that labor, most black males, uh, many black males anyway, are, who are in prison are uh, less, than, uh, less than high school graduates or maybe just high school graduates or GEDs. And they tend to be lower wage people so that they tend to be ignored in the official statistics that you see reported. But it goes, it's not necessarily always in that direction. There's some evidence, for example, in the last 20, 25 years that, in fact, uh, if you look at the wages of women, and in particular women, what you found, what what was being found was actually that uh, increasingly, starting in the 1980s, more educated women were working more. The the big growth rate in the labor force participation and employment of of women came among the most educated women, and it turned out that those were some of the most highly educated and higher-wage women, and therefore some of the growth of the female Wages may well be a consequence of the fact that they're getting more educated women who are, who are, have essentially higher, uh, higher wages and higher wage potential. So it does, it just, uh, this problem ge- generically affects a lot of social statistics. People want it to go away, but it's there. Well, they
0: like to ignore it, is what I found. I mean, I'm a big critic of the failure to keep, uh, to take account of demographic changes in household structure. Yes. And when you're using household data on inequality or home ownership and you have huge increases in single-headed households, uh, it's very uh, – it's inaccurate to compare over time without correcting for that, it seems to me. And yet people just happily go ahead and do it.
1: No, you're look I mean that's extremely relevant today when you think about the way that household inequality is measured. I mean there are two different issues here that show up uh, in a lot of discussions and just get totally confused. The one that you suggested is certainly highly, highly relevant, namely that a big contributor to growth in household income and equality is just the growth of single parent households. And we know that those are very, very unequally distributed. A second big factor is really just, I don't know if you want to call it a selection bias so much as a definition bias, that some of the most uh, relevant, some of the most uh, dramatic statistics about the rise in inequality. Are based not on the same data unit as the household, but on what are called taxpayer units. And taxpayer units and household units are very different objects. So being careful about these definitions and making sure that we hold composition or uh, of, the, of the workforce or whatever we're trying to measure important constant is, is an extremely important question, I think, and, and still something that gets easily neglected. Very hard to explain in a single and a single uh, word or two, and I think just gets lost in public discussion.
0: On the topic of um, wage growth, you mentioned women. It's rather striking how um, men's wages have been remarkably flat, at least in some data sets, um, which that avoids a household issue. But it, for a long period of time, when productivity has been rising, when overall incomes are rising, per capita GDP is rising, m- male earnings are remarkably flat, at least corrected by conventional measures
1: of inflation.
0: Have you looked at that? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yes, I have. I think there's some very interesting work. In fact, it's interesting. This last week, I was at the uh, American Economic Association meetings and gave a course on inequality, actually, uh, with Steve Derloff. So for three days, we met with a group of students, largely uh, faculty and uh, graduate students, who were interested in this question. And I looked at the latest evidence, which I think is extremely interesting and important, and namely, you know, uh, the discussion about the CPSU and the, the R.S. and the, the the deflator and what exactly the true measure of well-being is. Good luck. And, yeah. Well, no, no. It's it's a I realize it's a it's a controversial uh, discussion, but uh, what's interesting is the following: that if you look at the bottom, if you look, for example, take take for example a measure that received a lot of attention. About two years ago, there were official reports saying that the poverty rate in the United States, if it was properly, uh, sorry, the po- po- poverty rate in the United States in 2014, say, that was the year I think this was calculated for, and you compare it back to the beginning of the war on poverty in 1964, that basically we were at about the same level, maybe a little lower, but the poverty rate was the same. However, people who calculated this carefully and realize two things one the progress in uh, the true price of of living the fact that the cost of living has gone down there has been tremendous growth in quality if you look at so-called chain-linked indices you're going to find substantial growth in real income Mm -hmm. and secondly uh, so not only quality but you also had real reductions in price and especially among the basket of goods the so-called Walmart basket uh, that essentially a lot of more a lot of the poorer people, the less uh, affluent people uh, would be uh, governed by. In other words, that's the group that essentially is uh, probably the least advantaged among the um, among the population. and it turns out there's been substantial progress. And if you add to that, additional transfers and program changes the official poverty rate that many people, many economists and some sociologists, even some strong advocates of uh, research on poverty and advocates for the poor, would change the U.S. official poverty rate from 14% down to about 5%. So I think we've made tremendous progress. But it's because it's a partly in the matter of dimensions that have to do with uh, unmeasured components. Um, and I think this gets easily lost. On top of that, we have a lot of problems that the standard data sets that we use uh, for measuring wages and for measuring a lot of these, uh, even consumption expenditure, are showing increasing non-response rates, and, and that's a real problem. So when people adjust for these things, and their judgments made, no question about it, there does seem to be more progress and sort of less stagnation than you hear out there in the uh, in the public discussion, certainly in the po- presidential debates. But, I mean, there is an issue that real income growth uh, has not been uniform across the different levels of the income distribution, different percentiles of the distribution. But let's go, back to the, let's go back to one thing you mentioned at the very beginning here, Russ, and that is that if you think about selection and you look at the question that the labor force participation rate of males has been declining, even in the prime age. That this common measure that people use, the so-called 90-10, which is comparing the 90th percentile people to the 10th percentile people at the bottom, say, that the, that the content, the composition of those deciles is changing over time. So our comparisons aren't stable. People think of a percentage, uh, you know, five percentile, or even for that matter, the median, as referring Same to problems. a stable group of people. It's not. I mean, there are multiple skills, and and, and there's been a lot of selection, and a lot of the estimates don't adjust for it. So I think the world is not as pessimistic as what looks to be the case from just looking at unadjusted raw statistics. But that's a long-winded story. Yeah, I think it's
0: really really important. Um, No, I think
1: it's a very important discussion, which people just ignore, and uh, I think it's become politically uh, uh, convenient. For many people to argue, well, you know, we're getting declining real wages. I just don't think we are getting declining real wages. I mean, there are a lot of issues, but I don't think the real wage has actually declined. And even people using census data, CPS data, the current population survey data recently have not seen decline. So I I think, uh, but I think if you properly adjust, you actually see some real aspects of growth.
0: You know, you say people are careless about it. I, I expect politicians to be careless about it. I'm disappointed when economists are careless about it because they're, uh, I, well, for whatever reason, there are a lot of incentives there to either publication or to get attention or to be
1: influential. Well, I think, well, I think that's part of it. I think part of what the – I mean, the, as you know, in in the, in any profession, I guess economists are no different from others. Making big, striking statements is really uh, you know something that's dramatic. Making a splash is really important. But in this case i think there's a whole group of so-called poverty researchers you know people who are who are, are focused on income and equality who've just established a convention that they're going to decide that a skill level is a percentile in a current population survey distribution and making no adjustment for the fact that the um that the composition of those people at that percentile has changed so it's a little bit like uh you know the same person could be at the 15th percentile at the 5th percentile and yet uh you know they're they're treated as uh, uh as, as, as the, these percentiles are treated as really stable objects uh, and they're not and they're not describing the same people
0: well it's not yeah, and it's not just the same people it's that they don't have the same characteristics so if you Correct. just to take the earlier yeah. example household household composition at the median is radically different than it was uh 40 years ago and so oh, when exactly. you make it those kind of comparisons, it's it's an apples-to-oranges comparison.
1: Exactly, and I think that's very common. Uh, it's a common fallacy, but I've not seen any presidential candidate, not that I followed them that closely, or any any political candidate even discussing that, even qualifying. Yeah. Yeah. I think here the real incomes have gone down. And so there's an atmosphere of pessimism that seems to be out there that, that actually seems to be governing both sides of the, the political debate, Republican, yeah. Democrat. Yeah, I agree.
0: I'll switch gears. There's been a lot sure. of enthusiast, enthusiasm for uh, randomized control trials in economics, yes. uh, particularly in the area of development in poor countries. Yes. Um, but this goes back decades, as you pointed out, in labor economics, uh, experiments looking at the negative income tax, uh, the effect of training programs. How useful is, are these techniques and how reliable are their findings?
1: Well, uh, let me go back to uh, give you, um, you are absolutely right. Uh, these are, as you know, in social science, and economics is no exception, there are these eternal cycles. People get on the bandwagon, then they get off the bandwagon, and then they get back on the bandwagon, but they're new people. So the, the wagon keeps rolling, but the, but the occupants are changing. I remember as a graduate student at Princeton um, uh, University, uh, enrolling some of the very first uh, participants in the negative income tax experiment. That was an experiment suggested by research of uh, Milton Friedman, uh, suggesting that one effective way to transfer income to the poor, and giving people incentives, would be a negative income tax. So this was viewed, uh, there was a woman who was from MIT, a graduate student, who went to mathematics. her name was Heather Ross, and she, she actually was the mind, she and several others at mathematical were the were the minds behind creating this program uh, and trying to evaluate it and so what came out of that was an interesting uh and actually one of the great legacies of the negative income tax studies was actually modern econometrics or microcono yeah, <laughs> precisely precisely because the younger the, the 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 experiments were so messed up and people did not understand when they were designing the experiments how much choice there was, how much attrition there would be, how much individuals would would respond to incentives in ways that weren't even thought about. So the first round of experiments was generally viewed as a failure. I think John Cogan's testimony before Congress in the late 70s or early 80s kind of was the capstone of that failure uh, in the sense that he pointed out all of the variety of estimates and the need for using econometric estimates to adjust for. The non compliance, the self selection, the, the non response, and on and on and on. So that was, that all went to rest. Meanwhile, the faithful continued, and there was a large group of people working largely for government consultant organizations, big, big companies like Manpower Demonstration Research Corporation, Mathematica still continued. And so there's been a constant uh, faith despite this first round, what I would call extreme failure. Nobody believed the New Jersey negative income tax experiments and in the later Seattle experiments. Nobody believed them because they were so heavily compromised by by a whole set of other issues. But still, there's been this notion out there which which is popular. People understand, you toss a coin, you randomly assign aspirin to the one group and the no aspirin to the other and you make a comparison. It's so easy, it's so compelling, and it's so misleading in a social context. And, and I say that because it's not just development. So you get various people who've come along and picked up the banner. You know Esther Duflo has certainly been uh, has been the carrying the banner forward in development and uh, and energy. And I'm not saying that experiments don't add to the, but to the data sources that we have, but I think there are subtleties. Some, some of these points I made in a paper many years ago, Angus Deaton, um, you re- re- revived some of those points in the context of development, but they really came to this that people, when you experiment on them, are, are acting in a purposeful way. and but for, here's the, the, the most striking example I can say is the recent study about the Head Start Impact Program that was put out a few years ago by um, I believe it was the Department of Education. And the, the Head Start study, if you look at it, randomly assigned people to Head Start, uh, or at least some Head Start centers, and then um, denied access to others. They didn't deny it permanently. They denied it over a window of opportunity. And so the experimental results are reported. The treatment group really wasn't doing much better than the control group in the experiment. But as people looked at that study, they found exactly what we had found in earlier manpower studies and the like. And namely, what did the control group people do? Well, first of all, the random assignment generally has to be among people who are interested in taking the program in the first place, okay? So basically, whether it's a job training program or Head Start, you randomly deny access to people who apply and are accepted. That's the standard. doesn't have to be. In the drug trial, not necessarily so. Well, what happens is people who are denied access to the drug or the job training program or Head Start will actually try to find substitutes for it. In some earlier work, we found during the time when AIDS really wasn't treatable, that uh, that when random assignments were made of AIDS uh, trials to uh, just what was thought to be an effective drug for AIDS patients, the patients involved, the the experiment subjects involved, were so th- you know, threatened that they ended up sharing their medicine with the control. I mean, they didn't. It was blind. To, it was a blind trial, so nobody knew who had the treatment, who had the control but treatments and controls knew each other and they basically just randomized within themselves and everybody got a share of everything else. They at least got half a loaf rather than than none whatsoever. So, and this was certainly true in the job training programs where people who were denied one job training program would enroll in another and there are a lot of substitutes out there back in the 1990s and still today. But in the case of a Head Start, which is relevant, there are a huge number of other job of, of, of other head, of other child care programs out there, including other Head Start programs. So it turned out that a big chunk of the people who were in the so-called control group were also getting in a Head Start program or maybe a program better than Head Start. You know, some substitute they could find. So again, economic choice theory had its way, and the the, the control group was heavily contaminated by this. By this. And so a simple treatment versus control comparison was not informative. It's
0: understating, Recently, or, understating it, the it full really impact. It's really
1: understating the drug. It's like, literally, it's like comparing, like, I have an apple, I have a I have a Washington State apple here on the left and a Washington State apple on the right, and gee, there's no difference between apples, which is fine, but it doesn't tell you the question as whether well or not the apple is a good thing to eat versus nothing. <laughs> and that's literally what was going on. So I, I think what's happened is that there, there's this, this eternal, uh, this eternal optimism. People understand it; they think they understand it. These other questions are too subtle sometimes. People just don't want to, and they say, "Oh, here's the experimental evidence," and the experimental evidence, I think, is actually uh, has to be treated with a, a real grain of salt sometimes, a lot of caution, and people don't. It depends. I mean, for example, there were studies that were done in India in, um, about about the effect of small lending programs. Yeah. And one one group of people uh, in, introduced into the area, into an area of India, uh, a lending program for disadvantaged people. You know, generally women or small lenders. And the idea is, do these programs have any effect? And that particular intervention showed no effect whatsoever. But later analysts looked into it and said, oh, wait. It turned out when that program was introduced into that particular part of India, there were forty other programs, very comparable, already in place. So literally there was almost no there were perfect substitutes for what the treatment was. So the randomized trial was completely compromised by failing to think about a substitute. There are a lot of issues that arise with randomized trials. So I I think the issue of randomization, it's it's a good idea. An extra source of variation is good. But you got to be careful, and I think people aren't, and I think that's been a problem with the uh, interpretation of this data.
0: Well, let's look at more traditional uh, techniques. We had Josh Angrist uh, as a guest on Econ Talk talking about what some call the credibility revolution, econometrics, new research designs, other measures to avoid estimation challenges when we apply econometrics to microeconomics. Are you a fan of that uh, of that literature and those new techniques?
1: Well. Um I'd say two things. First of all, the so-called new techniques are um, not so new. They involve instrumental variables, which I think go back to uh, Sewell Wright or his uh, son, or his father, Philip Wright, um, 1928 or so. Um, Secondly, I mean, and and instrumental variables have been a central part of econometrics for the last 70, 80 years. So the methodology of instrumental variables is not new. I think the so-called... Just to clarify, for
0: just to clarify, for um, non econometricians, instrumental vari- instrumental variables are ways to try to control for the worry that causation might run in both directions, or or there's a bias in your estimation because of of the complexity of those interactions,
1: right? Right. Well, an instrumental variable is like a, you can think of an experiment, like we were talking about a minute ago, as an example of an instrumental variable. So, for example, uh, you can think of randomly assigning somebody. let forget about the, any problems with the experiment. What you find is that you randomized. Uh, if you randomize somebody, what it does is that is it's neutral between treatments and controls. Any unobservables among the treatments will be balanced with those among the controls and the randomized trial and the randomization assigns some people to a treatment and denies others treatment. That's in an ideal world. That's what an IV does, but it's not necessarily a random assignment. It's assumed, it's a big assumption, that it balances more or less the unobservables between the treatment and the controlled. But the application of the instrument, you know, moves people towards one direction versus the other. So you can think of randomization as just a special case of instrumental variables. So yes, sorry, not to define it.
0: Answer,
1: uh, but I think uh, I think I think this whole idea of the credibility revolution—it's very good. It's it's good for sales, and uh, I'm very happy to see sales and, and consciousness. But I think the idea of the credibility, so-called credibility revolution. First of all, I think we have to properly attribute a lot of this basic thrust to Ed Leamer in his famous book written in 1978. Yep. He had a book called Specification Searches in Economics, where he raised a lot of questions which are still on the table today. In fact, I would say a lot of the work in econometrics about robustness and sensitivity was presaged and pretty well described in that 1978 book by Lemur, which I think is still available online. Um, but I think the, the idea of the credibility revolution came from this, That, and I, think, and I think there is some value in being aware that a lot of conventional econometric procedures you know, assumptions about linearity, assumptions about normality, assumptions about making distributional assumptions, functional form assumptions, did, and was documented, were documented to actually change the nature of the empirical work that came from it. And it was very hard sometimes for people to reproduce the findings of one study by, by, by some other study. And so it became kind of a uh, cloudy cloudy uh, world out there, and people weren't sure what they were getting from all of these models. So I think there's some general thrust that was true in the whole economics profession starting mid-80s, about the time Angrist and others along the so-called credibility revolutionists were starting out in graduate school, that a lot of the previous structural work had not really delivered its promise, that there was a lot of fragility. So fragility is the key here uh but unfortunately what i see is it was one of the negative sides of the so-called credibility revolution is a lack of interpretation of what's being estimated i think the goal of econometrics as opposed to statistics is to ask economic questions and to uh, to answer those economic questions and i think that means you start with a question and the question is why am i doing this and what economic question am i developing what what am i what, what am I really answering? So you say, oh, like take what well, I mentioned, Kogan's work. When I change the negative income tax or when I make the incentive scheme uh, to work steeper, do I get, for example, if I, if I reward work more by paying higher wages or letting people keep more of their earnings, uh, do I get a greater labor supply response or do I get less? This was cast in terms of uh, what classical economics would call income and substitution effects you know, moving people towards something, compensating for real income, income effects, making people wealthier, buying more goods that are more desirable. Unfortunately, the credibility revolution has taken this notion that uh, that there's some missing variable out there, some unobservable, and we want to control for that unobservable to a new level, to a new extreme. So much so that there seems to be an obsession with making sure that we don't have this unobservable contaminating our result without asking, the, without asking the question of what is it that we're getting from this instrument or what is it we're getting. So it's kind of traded away. So the, where it's more credible is that it, there's less bias, but it's less credible in the sense that we don't know what we're estimating. And so what's happening is, is that much less use of economics is being made. And as a result, it becomes very difficult to use this for policy purposes, for anything. Uh, so, so the, so the, uh, the high point of the credibility revolution kind of work, or the instrumental variable type of work, would be: suppose that I have a policy, and I impose it in, in a, in a given environment. And so, literally, it's not a randomly assigned. I impose, say, in one state, a certain kind of withholding scheme on a tax payment. Say I, say social security taxes. Say I do this for Georgia. But I don't do it for for Mississippi, and I standardize for the differences in the ethnic uh, and social compositions of those two states. That's going to answer a very specific and useful question. If I impose that tax in between, uh, in, 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 on, on a certain group of people whom I studied, how much does that tax uh, change uh, their behavior, say, retirement or labor supply or or, or work behavior of uh, or unemployment search behavior? Uh, that will be a specific thing, but generally speaking, uh, it's very costly and very unrealistic to imagine that every policy we're ever going to find or ever be interested in is going to be a policy that we can exactly replicate. Generally, we think that price and income, you know, substitution and income effects, these basic economic parameters are what govern responses to policy. And the whole promise of econometrics back in the 1940s when it was really started in a rigorous way here at the Coles Foundation in Chicago was really to try to, undercover the, to uncover the basic economic parameters that govern behavior. So I think that there's been a huge shift away from kind of understanding behavior and moving towards statistical artifacts that are hard to interpret as, e- as responses to economic questions. So I think... The, so I think the credibility revolution has been somewhat overstated and probably properly uh, – uh, not properly appreciated as having really kind of turned focus away from serious economic analysis uh, towards uh, something that I think is more purely statistical.
0: Well, let me take a, an example that is talked about a great deal, and I want to set it in the context of what I often hear from young younger economists. Um, yeah. Uh, I'll hear people say things like, "Well, you know, I just look at the data. I don't. I just look and see what the data tell me, and I don't have. You know, I don't need theory, or I don't want to use theory to bias my understanding of what's going on in the data." An example of that would be uh, the minimum wage debate. So, you know, when I was uh, when I was growing up, uh, and when you were growing up, you're a little older than I am, but we're both somewhat similar generations on this issue. There was no debate. It was a overwhelming consensus by economists. In fact, what made economists distinctive from everyone else was that we thought that minimum wages had a cost. They hurt employment opportunities for low-skilled people. And Cardin-Kruger uh, came along. They did a state uh, boundary kind of comparison you're talking about. And they found uh, a very – they found very different effects than the traditional econometric literature, um, and that spawned an enormous literature uh, suggesting that minimum wage effects are either small or even positive on employment, um, but mostly close to zero, is a, a lot of people would argue. I wouldn't, but that's what they say. Um, what do you think of that debate?
1: Well, it's interesting. That's a very good example, Russell. So let me let me step back from that for a second. First of all, I think uh, I think uh, you know some of the most recent work. Some of the, for example, a recent paper that Tom McCurdy published in the uh, Journal of Political Economy last spring suggested that in fact, you know, there are other mechanisms by which firms can uh, can respond to oh, higher yes. prices. So, for example, higher higher wages. And one way, and and work also by uh, uh, a student of Card, actually at Berkeley is consistent with this in in a minimum wage study in Hungary uh, a few years ago, and that is that firms can actually increase prices. So instead of reducing employment, they can actually increase prices, and if they can pass it along, it really depends on the price elasticity, how inelastic the demand for the final product is. So just from basic economic theory, it's not necessarily always going to be reduction in employment. I mean, that's going to be a force in that direction, but there are other ways that firms can respond to higher cost shocks. So that's, that's one thing on the table. The second thing is, though, if you look at the card and Kruger analysis, and a lot of the subsequent analysis that came from that uh, line of work, um, I think some of it was fairly casual, and uh, to put it mildly, uh, and uh, I don't think the body of work, so if you look at some of the work by David Newmark and some of the other uh, analysts who have looked at this quite carefully, I don't think the the that the large thrust of work is actually saying that minimum wages have no effect on employment. Uh, I think that study in particular had certain issues that were were pointed out by Newmark and by others. Uh, just what what else was going on in those uh, two states at that time? Uh, how well? See, you see, this this is. See, from the casual observer, you sort of say, okay, I'm on one side of the, uh, I'm on one side of the, uh, Delaware River and you're on the other side. So, uh, what you're going to do is say, here's, here's, here's New Hope on one side in Pennsylvania and then there's a, there's a counterpart town just across the river and those should be pretty similar. But there are a lot of different state policies that are different and compositions are different and, and so it wasn't quite as easy, I think, as people wanted to make from that comparison. So initially, it sounded very compelling, but as it got examined more closely, I think people started thinking, well, maybe there really could be some effects. So in, in terms of the minimum wage debate, I mean, I think uh, I think it's still ongoing. I think it's, you know, there are cases, theoretically, where if your uh, firm is a monopsonist, for example, you might actually change employment. I mean, that that's a classic case that was Joan Robinson, I think, had that case or some version of it in the 1930s. But I think more generally, uh, the evidence does suggest that uh, that the structure is one towards increasing cost and then the costs are passed on in what various ways. So I think the debate that, that, you see what was compelling about that, and I will say it was compelling if you read the book, was that it looked at the, fir- at the surface to be very, very nice comparison. It was like a natural experiment. We had an increase on one side but not on the other side. But also, don't forget, that another key point that frequently gets lost is that the range of changes in wages that were being considered in those studies were actually fairly limited. There were fairly small changes in the minimum wage. I think if we get to the change of minimum wage, for example, of of coverage of Puerto Rico uh, by the U.S. minimum wage in the 1930s or even now today, we're getting huge increases in the minimum wage where where you're moving The bottom of the, uh, the bottom of the distribution up to the median, uh, and, uh, and that I think would lead, I think any economist, including Card and Kruger, would argue those would be changes that would probably lead to substantial disemployment effects. So it's a, see, see, what I'm saying is that minimum wages are not all the same. Some are bigger, some are smaller. So if I were to tell you that if you smoke one cigarette a day, Uh, You're not going to be hurt that much, as opposed to smoking three packs a day. Uh, I don't think you'd be too surprised, and I think a small change in the minimum wage is not going to have much of an effect, and I think that's been what the findings have been. And David Card, anyway, when he's been asked on this, has said repeatedly that they're talking about modest changes in the minimum wage, which is different from the parameter of saying, what happens if I boost the minimum wage by 50 percent? Their studies don't respond to that. They're just out out of the range. And this is the kind of counterfactual, the idea of a policy parameter that we haven't yet seen, except maybe in the case of Puerto Rico, that would be very important to know in designing policy, but that a simple, available observational studies and simple experiments won't, won't track. So that's why I think I think we really have to be uh, very careful. And again, that's the role of economics in, 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 in associated with interpreting the data. So. I think that's the part that's so coming back to the credibility revolution, I think the part of the incredibility of the incredibility revolution has been its unwillingness to kind of use economic models, even simple economic models. And it's not just a, this is not just an aesthetic appreciation. This is a sense of trying to think about how to interpret and generalize. So the most purely empirical procedure would be to say, I'm going to be purely inductive. I'm only going to look at regularities that I've seen in the past. But the trouble is the world is changing. It's always changing. And we need to try to extract from the past some behavioral regularities that we can use as a guide to interpreting and analyzing policy. I think that's gotten lost, both in the minimum wage debate and the larger issue of the credibility revolution.
0: Let me raise a broader concern that has been a common topic on this program and recently was raised in conversation with Noah Smith, despite my training at the University of Chicago, and a a good chunk of that came at at your hands, um, it's striking to me how rarely econometric evidence is decisive in creating a consensus about public policy or knowledge about a particular area. And I'm struck by how easy it is for advocates, whether ideological or methodological advocates, to dismiss empirical work as um, indecisive, flawed, whether it's experimental work, whether it's more traditional econometrics. And um, where do you think we stand on that? How much progress have we made in, say, in accumulating the kind of knowledge that that I think you and I both think is the right kind, the sort of the structural relationships that allow us to, to predict I I I'm very um skeptical of our ability to do that reliably given the complexity of the world and the kind of challenges you've been talking about. What do you think of that worry?
1: Well, I think it's a legitimate worry and it it worries me a lot. I mean, it, it what I worry about is the what I think is is more generally not just even about empirical work is kind of the non-cumulative nature of a lot of work in economics. Uh I'm thinking now more of macroeconomics and microeconomics yep. where we're seeing cycles. You know, we're in some parts, parts of macroeconomics. We're back to the Phillips curve, which was supposed to be dead and buried 40 years ago. And it's now alive and well and blossoming in central banks and public policy discussions in some quarters. So I think, I think part of it is that, and I think part of it comes not from the fact that it's econometric. But I think come, I think some of it comes from the fact that they, a lot look at certain parts of economics just lack data. I mean, that's the fact of the matter. So what is offered as a fact just isn't a fact. So like in the 60s, when I was a graduate student, late 60s, you know, people were talking about the instability of the Phillips curve. There were things called lipsy loops and yep. what was happening is the Phillips curve was shifting all around and people knew that that was an unstable object. And there was a gradual awareness of it, and then some theories were developed to try to explain that instability, which I don't think the theories were ever fully confirmed, but they were at least appealing, they at least over a period explained some of the stagflation and some of the instability of in macro phenomena. So I do think that there is a group of economists, not insubstantial, that sort of go through the motions of doing empirical, careful empirical work in economics, but either lack the data or lack the integrity or some combination of those two, or less the caution, maybe is the right word, not integrity, to kind of put the data in its context to say, I really can't say something very strong about this. And this is true for a lot of models. In, in, in macroeconomics and other parts of economics, there's a practice called calibration, the calibrated models are models that are kind of uh, looking at some, quote, stylized facts that are putting together different pieces of data that are not mutually consistent. I mean, literally, you take uh, estimates from this area, estimates from that area, and you assemble something that's like a Frankenstein that then... Stalks the planet and uh, stalks the, p- the profession. You know, walking around, it's got a it's got a labor supply parameter from uh, from labor economics, and it's got a an output elasticity from I O, and on and on and on. And then out comes something, and sometimes a compelling story is told, but it's the story, it's not the data. And I think there's a lack of discipline in some areas where people just don't want to go to primary data sources. And I think you're right, Russell, and it bothers me that. What we know as economists is much more limited than many people carry on as if they know. We just, and so I've become aware of that, just the humility of knowledge. You know, the old statement by Hayek, this pretense to knowledge uh, question, which I think is real, that there is a sense in which among professional economists, among professionals, generally, you want to so rigorous, carefully uh, reasoned work, which infrequently means highly rigorous formal mathematical models and yet what people are sometimes afraid to admit is just how rough-edged this stuff is. I don't think it's all bad. I think there's some really basic factors that are there and I think we can learn from them. But I do think that there is kind of a lack of humility in the face of, of data. But you come back to you you've raised a really important question about well, you know should we then be, go back to a purely empirical discussion about economics? Should we just have let the facts speak for themselves? That is a recurring fallacy. And I remember, um, if you think back, in the, and I don't remember this, I was I was a little baby or a little child anyway, but back in the 1940s uh, at Chicago, there was a big debate that broke out. And it was a debate really between Milton Friedman and Charlie Koopmans, although it wasn't quite stated that way, it ended up that way. And that was this idea of measurement without theory. Could you do measurement without theory? Arthur Burns, and for that matter, Friedman, We're trying to chart the business cycle. Burns and Mitchell in particular were trying to chart the business cycle. But using a very a-theoretical notion, very hard to interpret exactly what it is they had and what its relevance was for predicting future. So it led to a big controversy, which continues to this day, measurement without theory. And so it's very appealing to say, let's not let the theory get in the way. We have all the facts. We should look at facts we should uh, we should we should basically uh, we should basically uh, we should basically have uh, a structure that is free of, of a lot of arbitrary theory and a lot of arbitrary uh, uh, structure. That's very appealing. I would like it. The idea that we have this purely in- inductive, Francis Bacon-like style, not the painter, but the original philosopher. Yep. Um, so. But, but the problem with that is, as, as Koopman's pointed out, and as people have pointed out, that every fact is subject to multiple interpretations. You've got to place it in context. So it's not like, I, I think what, what it is, see, this is a case of, of reaction over reaction. So there are these rigidly specified models that nobody believes. I think that's true. Somebody <laughs> comes along and says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. And then even though that's very appealing, and it leads to, uh, it leads to it shows kind of a lot of ergs of energy and a lot of brain power. Nobody believes in them, because they're not robust. But on the other hand, if somebody comes along and says, see, here's a simple fact. Like we were just saying, wage inequality has gone up, right? And household inequality has gone up, therefore, the, 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 the economic system is failing. Well, think about what we were just saying earlier, the family is changing. That's a fact. That's a matter of interpretation. A different fact. <laughs> a different fact. And, but, it's, but then you ask, well, why is the family changing? That's a deeper question. But the fact is that every one of these, there's no such thing as an unadorned objective fact. It's somehow out there in the universe as this true fact. And, and there have been a lot of controversies in the, and the literature will continue long past our lifetime. So people will say, let the facts speak for themselves. But in fact, the facts almost never fully speak for themselves, but they do speak. And so the question is just to be, you know, sensitive to the facts and to interpret them in ways that uh, that allow us to be more robust. So I'd say in a lot of areas of economics, we have less knowledge than we think we have. So I think there is a pretense to knowledge. I think there's a lot less than we really think, than, than many people think they know. I think, you know, you look at conventions. I remember Dale Mortensen, the um the uh, famous uh, economist at Northwestern who was who got a Nobel Prize for his work on search theory. He and I were going to a conference together in Spain many years ago, and I remember we we're on the plane, we had a good chance to talk about a lot of things, and he was reporting estimates of the number, and I said, are you giving some numbers? And I said, well, Dale, you know, I don't know these numbers. I said, do you think that if, if I wasn't running with the club here, and I just kind of did my own independent research that I would come up with your numbers, and he smiled and laughed. No. You know, we all agree that this is this, this is that, and I guess progress is made that way, and I'm willing to go along with that progress, but I think one has to have a certain humility, and I just have to know that, you know, we know a lot less than we think we know, but we do know something. So I think um, I think you're right that when in some sense it's better to kind of be aware of the limitations But in the end we still need a framework of interpretation and so even Friedman uh, who was on kind of the other side of the Burns and Mitchell favoring kind of letting the data speak for themselves, Friedman in all of his work used very basic, very sound, very basic economic uh, models to kind of, to interpret the evidence. Permanent income is a great example. And and some of his work even on monetary theory the quantity theory. And so I think every successful body of social science has used basic models, but they've gotten to kind of the core of the idea, not bells and whistles. And bells and whistles are kind of second-generation, third-generation uh, add-ons. That becomes very, very uh, professionally, privately rewarding, maybe not so rewarding for the subject as a contributor to... Uh, to economic knowledge generally and the public policy. But I do think economists have contributed, I think, too. I think there was an appreciation, right, after all this effort. It's not fully appreciated, but gradually people are starting to use the fruits of the Boskin Commission and some of the other commissions that look at the effect of product quality on the consumer price index level. And I think people are just are, are adjusting. there's still arguments about the actual magnitude, but I think that was an economic principle, very simple, well documented, and that kind of made its way into the mainstream. So I think we, I mean, if you think about it, 70 years ago, <laughs> there were no C, current population survey data. They weren't the kind of information we have that today dominates the headlines every few months when somebody finds a new fact you know wages have gone up wages have gone down employment of blacks has uh, decreased or this or that so i think we have a much richer data system but i think we also have to supplement it with an interpretive system otherwise we're just going to have blind facts that can be interpreted in any which way
0: and i worry a lot about the biases we all have and how hard it is to judge those facts objectively when you don't have a theory and Oh, of course, we do have a theory. It's just in the background. It would be better to me to make it out. Put it make on the it open. out, but,
1: but the best way to do that is, is not necessarily that just everybody agree on one theory. Sometimes it's good to have very competing theories. Absolutely. People but stating their views in a very open way and then letting people decide. And uh, But sometimes the debate can get very, very complex. And you know even like think of the discussions about derivatives and the financial uh, asset regulation. Sometimes for the average person, even for a lot of average economists who aren't trained in finance, those discussions can get very technical and they probably can't contribute very well or even understand it well. So there's a sense there's also another sense, which is that um, parts of economics are hard, and if we were just a little more careful ourselves and had higher standards, I think people might be willing to defer more than they do now, larger the average person out there in the world, to economists if we had a little more internal policing about uh, what we did within specific fields. Yeah. You know,
0: I'm curious. You, you know, you, you talked about. Um The Hayekian, I think of it as Hayekian humility. Yes, yes. uh, Has that changed over your lifetime in your career? And for me, uh, when I was younger, I was a lot more confident. (laughs) I was pretty sure that, as I've said before here, I was pretty sure that my guys did the good studies and the other side had the bad studies. And it was a very painful recognition at one point to realize that actually the other side actually cares deeply, is trying their hardest, and they suffer from the same cognitive challenges my side suffers from. And their data is flawed and, and our data is flawed and our models are not so robust. Has that been part of your mindset uh, for a long time or is it something that you've come to as you've gotten older?
1: Well, it's, I mean, I think that's a general process of aging. If you do empirical work, as I do, and you get into, uh, into issues, you're, you're inevitably confronted with your own failures of perception and your own blind sides. And, uh, and I, think, I think the profession as a whole is probably better, much better now. I mean, the whole enterprise is bigger to start with. So you're getting a lot of diverse points of view. And the whole capacity of the, of the profession to replicate, to simulate, to, um, to check other people's studies has become much greater than it was in the past. I think a big development that's occurred inside economics, and it's in economics journals, and it's in the professional, that if people put out a study, except for having those studies based on proprietary data, you know, that that's many studies problem. essentially have to be out there and to be replicated. And it's, a, it's literally been the, the, the kiss of death for people not to allow others to replicate their data. And that's a good sign. So. I think that's a really good sign. I don't think that would have been true 50 years ago to the same extent it is now. So I think the whole profession's into replication, into basically uh, trying to try more closely to look more deeply at what other sides are going on. So I think we're in a better position to actually check each other, and I think that's a major improvement. So I think that's been a drift independent of my private aging. <laughs> but I also have this sense that I, when I was younger, I, I certainly think but I don't forget, I grew up I was actually I came of age, if you will, in the late '60s, and at that time, there was this hubris I think it was a hubris that yeah. I think was more centered in macro than micro. Uh, and it certainly influenced my uh, thinking, though, that you could basically control the business cycle. You could use econometric models to predict a lot of things. And then all that started unraveling within my lifetime, even my early lifetime, and people started questioning, you know, can we do this? I mean, The original Klein-Brookings model that was put out in the 60s, I remember as a graduate student hearing, reading, that it had, you know, all these equations, more equations and more parameters, and it had instrumental variables and uh, than it had any kind of credibility. And the systems weren't even mutually consistent, the equations. And and then the final blow came when a friend of mine, a, a professor, who was a little bit older, ended up working for Klein and pointing out how did Klein's model predict so well because when Klein got predictions from his econometric model, he would then adjust it using his insights. <laughs> yeah. so, So it wasn't like some triumph of econometrics. This is basically triumph of Klein's common sense. So I think, uh, I think, I think the whole profession probably was over, went overboard in the 60s and 70s, maybe, about the ability of economic models to predict. Uh, and I think that led to the backlash that's now we think of as the credibility revolution. And I think that, uh, yes, I think we've all come to recognize the limits of the data. But on the other hand, I think we should also be amazed at how much richer the database is these days how much, how much more we can actually investigate, for example, we can look at aspects of time use surveys, we can look at aspects of surveys of individuals in incar- incarcerated. We can look at We can look at uh, trends in areas we have very detailed scanner data which allow us to look at transactions at stores, individual transactions to identify kind of what quality changes are, how to adjust price and disease. So even though we've got a long ways to go, I think we've gone a long way too, way back from the 1920s uh, and 30s when there were almost no U.S. aggregate economic or microeconomic data. Now we have a large body of it. So the, I think the empirical side of economics is much healthier than it was when before, I mean long before, I mean, going back to the 20s and 30s. That was just a period with no data. So I think we have a better understanding of the economy than we did. And I think that's still there. And I think we have better interpretive frameworks than we had out there. And I think, you know, understanding the non-market sector, thinking more broadly about demographic trends within and appreciating them. I think uh, these are things that uh, I think we shouldn't uh, uh, overlook here and understate uh, where, where we've come from. We've come a long way.
0: Uh, Talk about your mentors, your influences, your intellectual influences when you were younger and certainly today.
1: Well, when I was young, I mean, I had uh, some very good uh, colleagues at Princeton. Uh, I certainly was uh, influenced by people like Richard Quant and uh, and then some younger people you wouldn't know so well, people like uh, Harry Collegian, who was now in Maryland, retired, and Stanley Black. These are people who interacted with me. Orly Ashenfelder was a graduate student with me when I was at Princeton, but he he's a couple years older than I am. But um, we interacted a lot, and uh, as peers, we were both feeling you know feeling our oats. And there was this econometric revolution where we could literally say, oh look, in labor economics, there was almost no application of uh, pr- consumer theory in terms of. Uh, in terms of econometrics. So we would read tiles books on consumer demand and apply it to estimating labor supply and so there was a lot of excitement. And a Princeton William Bowen was doing a study of the labor market, which was at that time very, very new, just a factual study. But over my lifetime, some of the great influences, probably some of the people who've influenced me the most, have been some of my colleagues here at Chicago. And I would put Gary Becker first and foremost in that uh I came in, you know, uh, a young guy, uh, anxious to uh, prove myself, and uh, and like a lot of people, uh, very interested in Gary Becker's work, and I found it fascinating and humbling. So I had Jacob Mincer as my first colleague at Columbia, my first job, and I kept in close touch with him throughout his life, uh, and uh, also then uh, Gary Becker with whom I interacted, and we taught classes and uh, shared seminars and so forth. So I felt. Those two are important mentors, but I felt also, for example, in macroeconomics, people like, uh, I don't want to say mentors, uh, I probably quit uh, getting a mentor years ago, <laughs> but I've interacted with people like Bert Singer, who's actually not even an economist, but he's a statistician, and uh, but I would say a polymath who has a range of uh, Ideas, and we've interacted broadly over a whole range of topics. He's gotten interested in economics; I've gotten interested in topics and statistics. We wrote some econometrics papers together, and then uh, in macro, I found some of the greatest stimulus being uh, from Lars Hansen, who, even though we're not, we've written a few papers together, but Lars has an incredible range of skills. And my general group of uh, high-quality colleagues at Chicago—they're really. Very good. And early on, you know, when I came to Chicago, Friedman was still uh, running uh, workshops. And I could, I treasured the time when I first came here of being able to go out to dinner once a week with Friedman. And he came to lunch uh, conversations, and we had all these great discussions. So, Friedman, Stigler, and Becker, those three people were very good. Robert Barrow was here. There were a lot of exchanges, some of them fierce, but some of them very good, and uh, and all of them with intensity. So I felt that the whole structure of colleagues here—William Brock, who was uh, at the time here as a theorist, uh, very heavily engaged. But look, when I arrived here, there had a lot of just activity going on, and uh, I don't want to say it's mentoring, but you know, I had people like Merton Miller and Myron Scholes, and uh, and uh, and you could go down a long list of very good. Greg Lewis was still here at that time. I inherited one of his classes, and. Uh, interacting with him for a while in labor economics, and then gradually, and then Lucas arrived, and you know, there was stimulation in that front, both positive and negative at times, but you know, sort of feeling, I always felt there was, Macro should be a little more careful than it was, but uh, nonetheless, I felt that I got a lot of stimulating ideas. So between the business school here, the law school, I mean, Coase was over at the law school. Posner and Landis and, uh, and Coase were actually very active at the Stigler uh, Workshop, uh, the Law and Economics Workshop, which was half I.O. and half Law and Economics. And so I remember many stimulating workshops and so I could go through a long list of people that, have, that I found stimulating and have continued, plus the students. I mean, getting students like you, getting students like McCurdy, we talked about earlier, uh, other students. I've had a whole host of students who in some sense have mentored me, I mean, <laughs> they've challenged me with questions they've forced me to rethink issues they're my best critics uh, and they're 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 frequently sources of ideas mutual i can sometimes help them they can help me but you know the whole atmosphere of chicago has traditionally been uh, give and take exchange and people uh, making um, back and forth and i think that back and forth has really been an integral part of my own training so i kind of uh when I got here to Chicago, I really became very enthusiastic about the structure of uh, of the place, and it was hard not to get caught up. And you know, at one point, uh, there was a very famous uh, economist here, now long dead and probably mostly forgotten, named Harry Johnson. Oh yeah, Harry Johnson, Harry Johnson, trade economist. So he he had a huge influence on me at the time. He he was a he actually was a Keynesian, uh, kind of opposed to Friedman. So Friedman and Johnson were both here. There was a little bit of unpleasantness about it because Johnson had written this paper claiming that Friedman had, had, had falsely characterized the history of the quantity theory in Chicago. But the fact of the matter is they were both very bright and they, they, they would exchange ideas. And I, it wasn't like I was caught between them. I could actually get stimulated by both of them. And they were both very open to me and I, I I already found I learned a lot about a lot of different things from them so it was it, it was a very exciting place, and it still is i mean it 's just the the generations change uh, and i I mentioned some pretty tall timber there, but uh it was uh, it, it was it, to me it was very stimulating, just the whole range of it, it just to go to the Stigler workshop for example and and you see this range of ideas. I literally the first year I was here, um, or I guess this was the second year I was teaching here. I actually um, became aware of this work, and uh, Posner had written a book called *The Economic Analysis of the Law*, and so I used that as a textbook actually in a course in price theory for undergraduates. And it just really stimulated all the undergraduates, you know. Uh, sure. and, it, and 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 you could and at that time I remember talking to Landis, Posner, and Coase. And, So all these ideas were in flux, and we could argue back and forth about this, that, or the other thing. So in that sense, it was really tremendously. But it was the case, though, that with dealing with Friedman, Friedman raised, for me, some of my first concerns about what you want to call the credibility revolution. So I remember telling him about some work that I was doing, and as you remember, some of the work I was doing was very complicated for its time sure. computation. Yeah. Oh yeah. I remember I was sitting in Becker's house, and I told Friedman about what I was doing. He looked at me and said, "You know," looked at me just straight on, bluntly. He said, "You know, it looks like in that kind of work there's lots of room for fraud." <laughs> and I looked at it, and you know, I said, "Well, yes, deliberate, or maybe it's uh, not so deliberate." And he agreed. And he's right. There was a lack of reproducibility. So Friedman was on to the credibility question. Mm. And it was the delicate. So it sent chills down my spine, but I also recognized that he was right.
0: <laughs> my guest today has been James Heckman. Jim, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: Okay, well thanks for having me.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty.